0: Heavenly Father, you are our Lord, and you are an amazingly strong and good shepherd. We've recognized through song this morning, and united our hearts in prayer this morning to you, because we recognize that you are Lord of all. We thank you that in your word, we find light, a light that guides our steps, that leads us the path to life, life with you eternally and forevermore. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would be exalted in our eyes, that Christ would be magnified, that we would see the exalted Jesus Christ as Lord of all, and that we would bow before you, that we would submit wholeheartedly and enjoy at your lordship over our life. We love you, Lord. And we pray all these things in faith and in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I think we all know that life is difficult. If you've lived for just a couple days, even, it can be hard. Babies even cry out. And in our old age and our life experience, we recognize that there are many difficulties that we encounter. In this life, many of you personally are going through sickness, some are going through serious health concerns, some of us through, you can be going through financial difficulties or relational difficulties, and these difficulties are really hard, they're hard to deal with, but this morning, what we know to be true is that when we are going through hardships, what we need to see is a holy God, Not because we use a holy God to fix our frustrations, but rather, seeing a holy God fixes our focus. Fixes our focus on Him. This morning, we're going to look at one of the most treasured texts in the New Testament. One that radiates from its pages the power and glory of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is that it was... Written during the suffering and persecutions of Paul, writing to those who were experiencing the same hardships. They needed an exalted Christ. And what we need this morning is an exalted Christ. While in chains for Christ, Paul was seeking to encourage these suffering co laborers to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This would require them to have a singular focus on living a gospel-transformed life for the glory of God. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul has been drilling down into foundational principles for Christians to live by. And he explained it this way, we are to glorify God by being united in the gospel, and we pursue unity in the gospel by living in humility toward one another. Paul proceeded to call these Christians and us to have the same humble mindset as Jesus Christ did. And he did this back in verse 5. And in verses 6 through 8, we saw that he laid out for us the incomprehensible condescension of Christ as the supreme example of humility. But Paul does not end the story there. Rather, he continues to show not only the mindset of Christ, but the response of the heavenly Father to the humble obedience of the Son. In verses 6 through 8, we saw last time what the Son had done for the Father. Now, this morning, in verses 9 through 11, what we will see is what the Father has done for the Son. Paul wants to tie together in our minds how much humble obedience Pleases the Father. Let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, In this passage is that Christ made himself lower than all. And the Father has made him Lord of all. The exaltation of Christ is anchored to the humiliation of Christ. It is in this steep contrast we see the wisdom of God in his wondrous deeds. Praise after pain. Joy after sorrow. Life after death. And crown after cross. The focal point of our text this morning in verses 9 through 11 are the precious four words found in the middle of verse 11. Words that, based on church history, actually formed the earliest confession amongst believers Jesus Christ is Lord. This morning, our goal is to marvel at the glorious exaltation of Christ so that we will humbly submit to him as Lord. And obey him as joyful servants of Christ. This passage is all about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in these verses, we will examine three truths of the lordship of Jesus Christ and then conclude by reflecting on a singular principle that we are to live by as servants of Christ. Let's look together at verse 9 as Paul transitions to show the first key truth the provider of the lordship of Christ. After detailing the depths of the condescension of Christ, he pens these words in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul intentionally links together the response of the Father to the humble obedience of the Son by this word, therefore, as if to say, that's not all you need to see. There's implications of what has happened. In verses 6 through 8, we see this repetition of what Jesus Christ did. In verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. But in our text this morning, Christ does nothing. Rather, the focus is all on what has been done for Christ. And Paul starts by drawing our attention to the provider of the lordship of Christ, God the Father. It is the God over all creation who has exalted Jesus Christ. Peter would point this out in his preaching at Pentecost, how this has always been God's plan. He declared in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is God's doing. There is no higher authority, no higher being than the uncreated creator of all. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present, and he is the eternal God. It is he who takes action to announce and adorn the Son with all adulation and awesome exaltation. Here in verse 9, we must see the delight of the Father expressed in his deeds for the Son. First, Paul mentions that God has highly exalted Christ. The word that Paul uses is not found anywhere else in Scripture. Paul uses a compound word that is meant to express the superlative nature of this act by the Father. The Father has super-exalted Christ. From the humiliating death prior, now to the highest degree of praise. How did God do this? Through the undeniable resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is how the Father has exalted the Son. Earlier in Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2, he would declare this in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, he continues in 33 to say he has been exalted at the right hand of God. These are events of enormous exaltation of the Son by the Father. And the necessary implications are that Jesus is both alive forevermore and therefore rules with all authority. We should rightly affirm that there is no greater event in the history of redemption and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This work of God both validates the sacrificial death of Jesus and provides the everlasting King who we need to rule in God's everlasting kingdom. And this is the very point that Paul emphasizes in this passage. In explaining and expounding Christ's exaltation, he continues by stating that the Father, he said, bestowed on the Son the name that is above every name. Not only has the Father super-exalted Christ, but he has also supremely honored him above all creation. Can you see the immeasurable pleasure of the Father in the humility of his Son? That God would exalt Christ At his right hand and crown him Lord of all. Not only does Paul detail in this passage the provider of the Lordship of Christ, but he continues to show us a second truth the power of the Lordship of Christ. Let's continue reading in verse 10. Why has the Father given the Son the name above every name? He says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord in reading through these verses we come to an undeniable conclusion that this name that keeps being mentioned is quite a big deal although we may not think about names that way routinely it is evident still in the idioms of our culture When someone name drops, they are trying to associate with someone of importance, or when someone is trying to make a name for themselves, they want to be recognized as significant. But this name that is given to Jesus is not about mere significance. It's the name above all names. It is the name of the one who has ultimate power and authority. This is the reason that the Father gives this exalted name to Jesus, to show his supreme power over all creation. Paul will tell us this supreme name in verse 11, but first let's look at verse 10. Here, Paul unpacks the unlimited authority and honor that has bestowed to the Son. And the best way to convey this earth shattering impact of the Lordship of Christ is to use the very words of God Himself. Paul, here in verses 10, starts quoting from the book of Isaiah. Throughout the prophet's life, he is continually pronouncing both judgment and hope from God. Judgment for the Israel's rejection of him and hope in his redemption of them. This hope ramps up in the second half of the book where God calls out comfort for his people and he tells the Lord's chosen servant is to come. And this chosen servant is one whom he delights in whom he has declared will both redeem and rule. And as you read through the chapters of Isaiah, you will see that upon the introduction of this chosen servant, there is a refrain that resounds in God's revelation. Listen for it as I read. In Isaiah 42, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. In chapter 43, God speaks saying before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. In chapter 44, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The repetition of this refrain repeats itself even more in chapter 5. Or excuse me, in chapter 45, where he starts in verse 5 by saying, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. In verse 6, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In verse 18, I am the Lord, and there is no other. In verse 21, and there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and Savior, there is none besides me. It's at this point at this point that we arrive at the eternally significant sovereign oath of the Lord of all creation and that is where Paul quotes here in our text in Philippians the lord declared it first in isaiah 45:23 he says by myself i have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return it's guaranteed mark it down it's going to happen he says, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This exclusive and exalted name that has been given to Jesus Christ, not an upgrade, but rather an authentication of ultimate authority and power. And the proof is found in this oath that God has said, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is universal submission of the creation To its creator. Paul develops further this repeated word in our text of every. As he details out in verse 10, he gives a list of what he means by the word every, what's implied when the Lord speaks. He says, In heaven and on earth and under the earth. The angels and saints in heaven, the redeemed and rebellious on earth, and the demons and condemned in hell each and every one will bow the knee in submission to the Almighty Christ. But not only will they bow, he says they will confess this reality of the Lordship of Christ with their own mouths. Everyone will acknowledge and make an open declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that is above all names is not Jesus. It is Lord This is the name that God declared of himself back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asks him for his name. He says, I am that I am. This name is Yahweh, translated in the Old Testament of our text, Lord in all caps. He is the Lord, the uncreated, eternally existent one who is sovereign over all his creation. God alone is Lord. And all those passages from Isaiah were affirming the exact same reality. God spoke repeatedly using his supreme name, Yahweh, Lord, saying that there is no other. Some wrongly try to twist this passage of scripture to say, God, uh, that Jesus became a God. But the critical error fails to follow the rudimentary interpretive principle. Context is king. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Paul himself, in the verses right before, in verse 6, said this when he says that Jesus was precisely God and equally God. But it also fails to recognize the quote from Isaiah. The Isaiah chapter 45 rapidly repeats with emphasis in the very same chapter that there is no other We need to accept and acknowledge and rightly uphold this precious truth that there is one Lord, and he is God. There is no other. Jesus Christ is not other. He is one with the Father, according to Scripture. There is no contradiction when we simply uphold the biblical truth of complete unity between the Father and the Son, just as Jesus himself said. This is the very truth, friends, that Jesus was killed for and it is one that we must be willing to die for as well. The Lord is jealous for his name. He's jealous for his glory and he has always defended it and always will. A biblical scan of history will show you that many have strived to claim to be this Lord, but there is only one to whom we must bow. If we look back in the Old Testament, we studied recently through Exodus, and we saw Pharaoh who claimed to be God and this sovereign Lord, but he failed every time. The Lord sent his servant Moses, and he says, the Lord commands you and tells you to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is this Lord that I should obey him? And the Lord showed himself He called every play and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to break you and every time you're going to harden your heart and I know exactly what's going to happen and I call it ahead of time because I am the Lord. I know what's going to happen. He calls it ahead of time and he says, you're going to fall down after plague, after plague, after plague and eventually you will let my people go and then you'll follow them and you'll chase them down and I will swallow you up in the closing down of the waves while my people walk across on dry land. You are not the Lord. Pharaoh is not Lord. Later, we see in the history of Israel, the northern part of Israel after the split of the kingdom, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes and he's taunting King Hezekiah and the people in Jerusalem saying, I've conquered all these other towns. Their gods are no gods. Don't trust your king who says that your God will protect you. He is no God. And Hezekiah goes to the Lord and says, Lord, he's defaming your name. We are hopeless without you. And the Lord says he's doing only what I've told him to do. He will not step foot in this city. Matter of fact, he's going to tuck tail and run, and he will be destroyed in his own hometown. And guess what happened? The Lord sent his angel and destroyed 185,000 of Sennacherib's army, and he ran back home to Nineveh, and his own sons killed him while he was worshiping in a pagan temple. That's who our Lord is. Sennacherib is not Lord Later, we also see the king of Babylon in the exile period, where Israel is taken out of their land in judgment, and the king of Nebuchadnezzar was his name, and he has the words in his mouth, is this not great Babylon that I've built by my mighty power, and my glory is displayed? Yet the Lord had already said a year before, you will be proud, and I will cut you down like a tree. His sanity was taken from him. And after he returns, after seven years, he recognizes there is only one Lord, and I am not he. The God of Israel, he is the Lord. Over and over again in history, whether it's by the sea or by sword or by sanity, God proves that he alone is Lord over all. It is not the kings of the nations. And he tells in his prophets of this future one that would come, who would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And his name would be Emmanuel, which is God with us. And he would be born of a virgin. And that he would, the the lame would leap, and the blind would see. That he would do these miracles showing that he is God. And in the New Testament, we find this to be true. Jesus is born of a virgin, but they mocked Mary. They assumed there was infidelity. They denied it. They didn't verify these, these miracles of Jesus. When he would heal the blind, they would dismiss it. When he would heal the lame, they would dismiss it. And even his disciples, when he shows his power over the winds and the waves, they say, who is this man that the winds and waves obey him? Who is he is the question over and over and over again in the Gospels. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man from Nazareth? And eventually he's crucified. He's crucified. He's led to the cross, and he dies on a cross. And there, in Matthew chapter 27, the rebellious Pharisees are sitting there mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews. It says that they were on bended knee. But who is Jesus? We know because he has been exalted. And after his death, he told them ahead of time, you know what I'm going to do? I will be die, but I will rise again on the third day. Just watch. And God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead because death could not hold him. And what this verified for the disciples and ought to verify for us is that Jesus is Lord of all. It's exactly what Thomas's response was when Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection in glory. You know what Thomas says. He says, my Lord And my God, that's who Jesus Christ is because he is risen from the dead. Death held all these other enemies, but death does not defeat the Lord. He is sovereign over all. It's verified in his resurrection. The saints were told right before his ascension, all authority has been given to me. And he commands them to go and make disciples. And he is ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other because he has ascended into heaven and he was resurrected by the Father. Signed, sealed, delivered. It's guaranteed. That's who Jesus is. He is alone, Lord of all. And what we see in the New Testament is that that's the exact same message that the disciples went out to say, to declare, and that was what was getting them in trouble. They kept saying, Jesus is Lord. If you look through a scan of the book of Acts, you see that Jesus Christ is referred to only twice as Savior in the entire book of Acts. Guess how many times he's referred to as Lord in the book of Acts? 92 times. 92 times the message of the disciples was that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. You are, need to repent and bow the knee. And over and over again, they were in trouble because they're living in a Roman world, right? And the claim was that Caesar is Lord. We can't bow the knee to Jesus. We'll get in trouble with Caesar. We'll lose our heads. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And friends, this is the exact same message for us today. The message is the same. The Pope is not Lord. Putin is not Lord, the President of the United States, he is not Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. That's it. There is no other. He is risen in power, ascended in glory, and he rules over all, the living, the dead, the angels, the demons, heaven, earth, and hell. He rules it all with all power, not tentatively, not temporarily, but triumphantly today. Jesus Christ is Lord. But that's not the end of the story. He rose in power like he said he would. And his words are true, just like he said. And he made another promise. He said, I am coming back again. And we look to the end of the story. In Revelation chapter 19, there's this rider on a white horse. And it is Jesus Christ, the Lord He identifies himself as the faithful and true, which we see at the beginning of the book of Revelation, is Jesus. And on this horse, he has a robe, and on his thigh, both are written, the king, singular of kings, and the Lord, singular of all lords. He alone rules with power, and guess what? The beast, he's not Lord. His rebellious kings, they are not Lord. The false prophet, they are not Lord. They are destroyed and abolished, the kings, and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. They lose, Jesus wins. He alone is Lord. In in chapter 20, the same story different characters. Satan is released for a time according to the Lord's plan, and he deceives the nations to gather an army, and they want to fight in this last rebellion, and they are destroyed, killed, and Satan too is cast in a lake of fire. Why? Because Satan is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's not all. After that comes this moment, this moment that Paul, I believe, has in mind, where the dead of Hades, and in the sea, are given up. Those who mocked Jesus, the kings, the Pharisees, those of today, and those in these rebellions. And the dead are given up before the king of kings and lord of lords, and he opens the book, and judgment is cast for each and every one of them. Perfect justice, and it's there that they will bow the knee, not mockingly, they will confess, not harassing, but with truth and validation that Jesus Christ alone is Lord because he's risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, and that's true today and it's true forever. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. There is no other. He is Lord, not possibly, not potentially, but powerfully and permanently forevermore because God raised him from the dead and has given him the name that is above every name. A name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the message of hope for the Christian. Because death and Hades are cast to in the lake of fire. That's the last enemy to be defeated. To show that death itself is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This truth about the Lordship of Jesus Christ is at the bedrock of belief for the Christian. This was proven even by Paul himself in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. He says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love how A.W. Tozer decisively addresses this topic about the Lordship of Christ, that he is both Redeemer and Ruler. He says, Those who refuse Jesus Christ as Lord cannot use him as a savior. Everyone who received him must surrender to his authority. For to say we receive Christ when in fact we reject his right to reign over us is utterly absurd. It is futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and try to take Jesus in the other. There is no redemption apart from the rule of Christ. To be saved from your sins, friend, is to be submitted to Christ as the sovereign Lord of your life. Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question this morning is how will you bow? How will you bow? Will you bow in glory or will you bow in grief? Will you bow in delight or will you bow in defeat? Will you bow in jubilation or will you bow in judgment? There are some who will, up to their dying breath, reject Christ as Lord. But there will come a point, a day of judgment, that they too will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart today, and has given you ears to hear and a heart to believe in the sacrificial death of Christ for your sins and his sovereign exaltation and resurrection as Lord of all. Do not wait. Don't wait another minute. Bow the knee today. Humbly submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To live eternally in joyful submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, this is the power of the lordship of Christ that's been provided by the Father. But Paul concludes by emphasizing the third and final truth we find in our passage. That is the purpose of the lordship of Christ. Let's read the final phrase of verse 11 at which this exalting passage peaks. Paul concludes the last phrase to say, to the glory of Of God the Father. This purpose statement really encapsulates the entire section all the way back to verse 6. Let's work it backwards to see how this connects. First, we see the recognition of Christ as Lord over all creation is what glorifies the Father. Their acknowledgement of who Christ is glorifies the Father. But he says, so that. That's a result, a connecting idea. So we go back to the next phrase. Further back, we see that only happens because the Father exalts the Son with this name above all names. So we can rightly conclude that the Father's exaltation of the Son glorifies the Father too. But there's a therefore, which means it's connected to the previous section. This exaltation of Christ is connected to his humiliation, this initial domino of this idea that's presented to the church at Philippi. The humility of Christ in his condescension. That too glorifies God. Do you recall what's happening in these verses leading up to Christ's example? Paul's teaching and instructing these believers on the very topic of humility. This foundational principle of Christian living. Back in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We can't conclude from this text then if he's telling them don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. We should not summarize this passage as be humble so that you get a promotion. That would be selfish ambition. That would be conceit. No, it's actually much better than that. The word for conceit that Paul uses here in verse 3 is another compound word. It's literally the two words Empty glory. So big picture zoom out of our passage this morning. What Paul is saying is don't do anything for empty glory for yourself. Instead be like Christ who emptied himself for the glory of God. That's the summary of this entire section. We are to be emptied to become like a servant for the glory of God. This is the heart of Paul's doctrinal exhortation The singular principle that we must not miss this morning, if you're taking notes, this is it. Humility glorifies God. Humility glorifies God. But what does it mean to glorify God? To glorify God is to show off his holiness, to display the beauty of his perfections, to exhibit the excellencies of the eternal one. When we humbly submit to Christ as Lord, that glorifies God because we're acknowledging His majesty. When we live humbly toward one another, that glorifies God because we're acting like His majesty. We need to recognize that the Lordship of Christ is directly connected to living for Christ. When Christ is your Lord and Master, you serve Him alone, there is no other. We are to live in every area of life with this singular focus. To walk humbly as servants like our Lord to the glory of God. Do you know this morning that your humility glorifies God? That it actually pleases the Heavenly Father when you humbly serve Him. That it pleases Him when you look like His Son. That it pleases Him when you submit to Him as your Lord and Master. Paul would articulate this very thought in chapter one, verse 11, in his prayer for the Philippians. He said that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Friends, the essence of humility is making the glory of God your preeminent pursuit in every area of life. But if we're honest, humility is hard for us. We don't like to say it because admitting it means we actually have a bigger sin issue than we want people to know. And the ironic thing is that is really just showing how bad our problem is, really. Humility is only hard when glorifying myself is more important than glorifying my Heavenly Father. Yes, it is true that humility glorifies God but the opposite is true as well pride seeks to glorify self this is the insanity of our sin that we seek to make much of our self rather than our sovereign lord who is undefeated and calls the play ahead of time we make this mistake just like the kings of history we forget who is lord to give a simple analogy I can forget that that Jesus is Lord when I stub my toe. Seems trivial, right? But all of a sudden I have this authority to call down fire from heaven on this adamant object that's gotten in my way and caused me pain. But we would rightly assess the problem there isn't the object. The problem isn't even my pain. The problem is my heart. But friends, we do the same thing with people, don't we? When people hurt us, when people malign us, we're ready to cast judgment, whether in our mind or with our mouths or in their backs, to others. Friend, the problem is not the person. It's not their action towards you. It's not the hurt that you feel. The problem is your heart. And at the root is this very problem. The heart problem with us, all of us, is that we Want to be Lord. Children, if you're listening this morning, when you go to your parents and you make demands, when you try to boss them around, when you press against authority, you're saying, I want control. I want to be sovereign. You're saying, I want to be Lord. But let me appeal to you from the words of Scripture. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Your way of obeying God is by honoring and obeying the authority God's put in your life. Will you humbly submit to your parents and authorities and give up this pursuit of control and say, No, Jesus is Lord, and I will trust him. And it will show itself in my relationships to my parents and others. How about adults? We want to be Lord too, don't we? We want to be Lord in the eyes of our spouse. We want to be Lord in the eyes of our children or our grandchildren. We want these people to bow the knee to us. Sometimes it looks like this aggressive authoritarian, you will do what I say. I want you to do everything that I want. I want this control. I want to be Lord. Sometimes it looks like passivity. I just want to make everybody happy, and really your happiness is... How I feel like Lord. Friends, this is sin against Jesus Christ. He is Lord and there is no other. I think at the root of this problem, when we don't get what we want, when we're upset with others because of their their not treating us the way we want to be treated, the problem is we're really displeased with God. We're saying, God, you're not giving me what I want. You're not giving me what I deserve. It's because we think that we are Lord. And friends, we need to repent. We need to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who alone rules with all authority and power. He is your redeemer, amen and yes, but he is your ruler. Bow to him. Humble yourself before him. Don't be content with knowing the fact that Jesus is Lord. Rather, fight daily to live according to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord today. The only way that you will live in humility with others is if you reside daily at the feet of your Lord, Jesus Christ. We are called to humbly serve Christ as Lord, and we do this for the glory of God. And that's the heart yearning Heartbeat of every believer in Jesus. Let's rejoice in this truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. And let's live for Christ in humility and for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that it is hard for us to be humble. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to Remain at your feet each and every day. That we would humble ourselves before you so that we might glorify you in the relationships that we interact with here on this earth. That we would see it as for your glory that we seek to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Help us not to think, Lord, that any of this is of our own doing. We depend on you completely and utterly. Give us a passion and a zeal. Pour out your grace in our lives so that we might humble ourselves before you And live humbly with one another for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, our greatest desire is that your name would endure forever. That your fame would continue as long as the sun. Lord, we ask that you would be blessed as Lord of all and Lord of your people. You alone have done wondrous things. Blessed be your glorious name forevermore. May the whole earth be filled with your glory as you have planned ahead of time that you are Lord of all and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We love you. We ask for your grace to be poured out and that if there's any heart here, Lord, that is resistant to you, that you would break them, break them today, that they would bow the knee recognizing that you are Lord of all, not of some, that they cannot have you as Savior and reject you as Sovereign. We ask, Lord, that you would do this for your glory and for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.